Hi, I'm Pastor Adam, and you're listening to the Orange United Methodist Sermon Podcast. We're a church in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, that wants to help you find your place in God's story, and we hope that this sermon will guide you along that journey. Visit orangemethodist.org for more information about location, service times, upcoming events, and ways to give. We hope you enjoy. As we've been looking at the life of David, and so today our scripture comes to us from 2 Samuel chapter 12, verses 1 through 13. I've always found it special to be able to pull out the Bible and actually hold it in my hands. And so I invite you, if you've got your Bible there with you, 2 Samuel chapter 13, 12, verses 1 through 13. Hear now these words. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he bought. He brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his meager fare and drink from his cup and lie in his bosom. It was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was loath to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the wayfarer who would come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared that for the guest who would come to him. Then... David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. He said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. He shall restore the lamb fourfold, because he did this thing, and because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I rescued you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your bosom and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if that was too little, I would have added as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Amorites. Now, therefore... The sword shall never depart from your house. For you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, I will raise up trouble against you from within your own house. I will take your wives from before your eyes and give them to your neighbor. And he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this very son. For you did it secretly. But I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan said to David, Now the Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. This is the word of God for you, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God indeed. Let us pray. Almighty God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts Be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Good morning, Orange, once again. I'm Pastor Corey, the associate minister here. And 
This week, we are, as Pastor Adam mentioned, wrapping up our Lead with Heart series. So for the last two months, we have considered what it means to lead with the heart of God and how King David, a man after God's own heart, how he models and sometimes fails to model what it means to pursue God, to pursue God so that our hearts become aligned with God's heart and God's purposes, not only for us, but for all of creation. So we've explored the ways David led with integrity, courage, passion, humility, forgiveness. And we've explored the ways that David's heart failed to seek God's heart and sought instead to fulfill David's own selfish desires, his pursuit of Bathsheba and the murder of her husband Uriah. We witness the tragedy and the brokenness that follows. I mentioned this early on, but David is the second most named individual in the entirety of Scripture, second only to Jesus. And so I confess I have loved this series, exploring this important character who was so deeply flawed and yet so deeply in love with God. This week, we continue in chapter 12 in the aftermath of what King David has done, the story of Bathsheba and Uriah. And what he's done is unthinkable. We can't even fathom it. He hasn't acted as any king should act, and especially not a king who is after God's own heart. But before we dive into the text this morning, I... I want to share with you all a personal confession. So in recent weeks, uh, we've had a bit of a parenting issue come up, my husband Tiagan and I, and we have a a two-and-a-half-year-old, Ephraim, and he's a monster truck enthusiast. And his monster trucks, they... They, they live in their own worlds, okay? They talk to each other, and usually their conversations mirror whatever Ephraim is absorbing from the world. So whatever he sees uh, on TV or hears on the radio or whatever the people around him are talking about, his monster trucks reflect. And I love to sit and just listen to what they have to say. And I especially love when the monster trucks talk about going to church, and they do, they do. And then the monster trucks also talk about not being able to go anywhere until people get better. And I underestimate how much he actually absorbs. He gets so much, much more than I give him credit for. But about two weeks ago, um, I heard the monster trucks fussing over something, and one became so enraged with the other that he lashed out and said, you stupid, stinky, and it just trailed off. And I immediately confronted Ephraim, so panicked, and said, I'm sorry, sir, but what did you say? He was frozen, and we had a very tense conversation about why we don't say S-T-U-P-I-D. And he told me he understood, and he was sorry, and we went about our afternoon, and he said it a few more times that day, and we ran the same drill, why we don't say that word. It's unkind. It hurts people's feelings. And my husband and I racked our brains. Where could he have heard this? A movie, a show, uh, the radio? I, I don't know. We were dumbfounded. It, it took a few times, but eventually he's taken to it, and I haven't heard him say it in a while, so 
parenting win. Well, Mondays are my day off, and uh, so Ephraim and I, just this past Monday, were in the kitchen puttering around trying to get ready for the day, and I was washing a dish and talking to my mom on the phone, and she was telling me a story. I don't really remember what it was about, but I un- unconsciously and casually responded, well, that is just plain, you guessed it. The conversation continued until I felt a tug on my shirt and a tiny human look up at me with real concern and say, you are that woman. No, he just said, mom, did you just say stupid? I froze, called out, called out so hard. Do you know what my first instinct was? To lie, (laughs) to deny it. Immediately, I was like, no, no, I didn't say stupid. I said, I love Cupid. (laughs) And I was horrified when I heard Ephraim say that word. I agonized over where he'd heard it from. From me. I was. I am that woman. I was saying, don't do this while I paraded around doing the very same thing, not even paying attention. I had no integrity in asking him to stop. The stakes weren't, aren't that high in this easily redeemable story, but the shame I felt from being called out still made the allure of lying, continuing in my sin, covering it up so appealing. Why? Why are we so hesitant to admit we were wrong, that we are wrong, that we've messed up in the minor things and in the major things. In this story, God sends the prophet Nathan, we could substitute Ephraim uh, for his name today, but we won't. God sends Nathan to talk to King David, to tell David what David couldn't see for himself, what David couldn't acknowledge for himself. He was so deep inside the toxic world of self-protection that he'd created for himself, he had to silence all the voices except his own in order for his actions to be acceptable. Bathsheba, of course, was silenced. A woman summoned by the king, she had no choice, no agency to tell the king that what he was doing was wrong. Her only words in the entire story, I'm pregnant. They themselves are an attempt at holding David accountable, but David sees no way out, but only a way deeper. So he concocts a plan to cover, not confess his sins. And when it fails, because Uriah, out of his honor, refuses to lay with his wife, David goes deeper still. He coordinates Uriah's death, silencing Uriah, silencing with a sword the voice that could have exposed David's sin. David thinks he's covered all his bases. He's thought of everything. He's used his power to stay on top. He's seemingly self-preserved his image. And perhaps David even breathes a sigh of relief in this moment of quiet that he's created. But the prophet Elijah reminds us in another story that it's often in the very silence Even the silence we create that God's voice simply cannot be silenced. That's a part of the story that David doesn't think through. God cannot be silenced. 
And so God sends Nathan to speak, to tell David a story, a story with no names, no geographical details. This isn't a case that Nathan is presenting to King David for him to wield justice. No, this is a parable being laid before King David. And David tells, or Nathan tells David, as Pastor Adam read, a story of two men, one rich, one poor. And the rich man has more than he can count of everything, sheep, cattle. And this poor man has a single lamb, a lamb that he has reared, that has eaten at his table, that he has rocked to sleep night after night. And one day, a traveler appears at the rich man's door. And out of his stinginess, the rich man takes the poor man's lamb and prepares a feast for the visitor. King David explodes with anger, righteous anger, and he says, as surely as God lives, the man who did this should die. He should repay that man fourfold for what he has taken. And Nathan looks at David, and he says, you are that man. And not only are you that man, but I'm going to tell you just how much you are that man. Nathan explains how God gave David everything. He made him king. He gave him not only Israel, but Judah. And he says that if David had asked for anything else, God would have gladly given that too. Reading God's word delivered through Nathan, it's heartbreaking I gave you everything, David. Why? Why did you have to take Bathsheba? You took her for yourself after you killed Uriah with the enemy's sword. God says, why have you treated me with such contempt? And now there are consequences, real painful consequences, so much brokenness, so much harm that David never imagined or even considered Because again, he was in that pursuit of gratification and self-protection. And in these moments, David was motivated by David. Nothing else. And in that cave long ago, as Pastor Brad told us, when David chooses not to kill Saul, David's motivated by God. But that shift, that change... When David becomes the center of David's world instead of keeping God at the center. And I I think what can happen when we become the center of our own worlds, and it happens for so many reasons, but that shift, that change in orbit, it didn't happen for David instantaneously. It was slow, insidious, I'm sure. This shift from receiving everything as a gift from God to instead grabbing and grasping everything we feel entitled to. Why do we think we need more? It's because we don't believe we have enough. David needed more because at that moment what he had wasn't enough. It wasn't enough to satisfy his hunger or at least he didn't believe it was enough. 
And yet we receive the promise again and again throughout Scripture that God has indeed given us enough, that Jesus promises we will never thirst again. Jesus tells us he's the very bread of life, that whoever comes to him will never hunger again. So why do we grasp for more, like the rich man going after the poor man's lamb? We don't think we have enough. We've lost our focus. We've become the center We are the men. We are the women. We have all been guilty of taking what we want and then silencing or shushing the voices that tell us it wasn't ours to take or shushing or silencing the voices with excuses to justify our actions. What have we taken? I could list out examples, but... I want us to do this work, that inventory. What have we taken because we thought we needed more, that what we had wasn't enough? And what was taken instead, what was broken instead, was peace and trust and stability and hope and promises and futures and marriages and friendships and families. This morning may be a hard word because this passage requires that of us. This is a hard passage. It's hard for me because it tells us we don't live in isolation. As much as David tried to insulate himself from the repercussions of his sin, there was so much harm done, so much pain to heal. And David has a choice at the end of the passage. He can choose to continue this work of self-protection and self-deception, still grasping. Can't you just hear him now? I'm nothing like that guy, Nathan. No, 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 no. You have it all wrong. You just don't understand everything that happened. You, you weren't there. Just let me explain. He can, I didn't say stupid. I said I love Cupid. Or, He can refocus. He can adjust the lens. He can quite literally move in a different direction with the act of confession. He can repent. To move in another direction, that is what repentance means. He can muster all the integrity, humility, passion, forgiveness, character that God has revealed in and through him. And David can respond to Nathan's truth with his own truth. I have sinned against God. I have sinned against God. David takes responsibility and he names his sin. He confesses. And in this moment, this truth-telling prophet Nathan tells David, yes, you've sinned. You've broken God's heart. But that isn't the last word here, David. Your sin doesn't end the story. God's forgiveness has the final word. What we discover in the verses that follow is that David's repentance can't undo in a single instance all the pain and wreckage that David's choices have caused. It's a lot of harm. It's a lot of violence. 
It's a future that still holds so much grief. But there is still a cosmic shift that happens here because what we know is that the wages of sin are death. But David's repentance, his confession, turns him back toward life. God's forgiveness gives him a chance for a new beginning, a different beginning than he probably imagined. But it's a chance to live differently and to heal in many ways, himself and those he's wounded. And God's promises still remain for David. And they still remain for us. If we can receive the word of truth from God or perhaps receive the word from a Nathan in our lives, those people who we can trust so fully that we know are telling us the truth, if we can receive a word of truth and instead of making excuses or silencing its voices, if we could shift, if we could change, repent, confess, change our very direction and turn, turn toward a vision that is full and fills us, a vision of God as our very source of life from whom everything we receive is a gift. This is a posture of life that receives rather than takes. And if we only receive from God what God has intended for us, then our hands can't take what doesn't belong to us. Repentance takes great humility, and it can feel quite risky. Who are we if we confess that we're sinners? Well, sinners. My mentor, Gary, used to tell a story of being appointed to a new church and that he decided to change the way they did communion from cubed bread and small cups to intinction where there's one loaf and one cup. And a congregant came to him very concerned and said, I just don't like the idea. I mean, what if the person that goes before me puts their hand in the cup and they're, you know, a sinner, they've sinned. Gary didn't miss a beat. He said, I don't know what happens, but you should probably just ask the person behind you. We have all fallen short of God's glory, but we have not all reckoned with the ways we've done that. The story of Nathan and David, it calls us to that confession, that opportunity, that repentance, and it does so for the purpose of telling us that no matter what, God can bring us back to life. In our study of David, we've talked about the fact that many of the Psalms are attributed to David. And for one in particular, you find the description. When the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. And so as we close, I want to share the words of the psalmist and encourage us that there is no sin there's no distance that God's love cannot bridge if only we are willing to confess and to be led over it. May God's heart always lead us on. Let us pray.
God, we offer these words of Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions, wash away my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you're right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me, yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place, cleansed me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, you who are my Savior, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart you, God, will not despise. May it please you to prosper Zion to build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in the sacrifices of the righteous and burnt offerings offered whole. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Amen. Thanks for listening to this week's sermon. Please join us again next week. In the meantime, you can find us online once again at orangemethodist.org. Thank you.